Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Isaiah. We will conclude this book next week, so just today and next Sunday in Isaiah. Today we'll be in chapter 55, chapter 55. We have rejoiced in the promise of God to send his servant. We read of him in chapter 42. We read of him again last week in chapter 52, 53. Today we come to read again of him in chapter 55. The Lord promises that he will send one to rescue us, to save us. Historically, the context of the book of Isaiah, particularly the last half, is a, a time of exile. A nation has been overrun by another nation. In this case, Judah, the people of God, have been deported to first to Assyria, then to Babylon, and uh, now they are awaiting a rescue. A few of us have ever perhaps had that experience. We found ourselves captive where we didn't want to be captive or enslaved where we didn't want to be enslaved and so forth. Uh, so that particular circumstance may not be identical to anything we've experienced, but I assure you that we have all experienced the captivity of sin. Have we not? We all have experienced the misery that it brings, the heartache that it brings, the disappointment that it brings, the carnage that it brings. Maybe our sin, it may be the sin of our loved ones, maybe the sin of our friends, maybe the sin of our heroes. It may be the sin of strangers. But somehow we manage to find ourselves and get caught up in the web of sin. And in the midst of that, we find ourselves in need of rescue. Well, I want to say to you today that if you are here today and you have never found the ultimate rescue, I don't mean the circumstantial rescue. You're in a bad place and now you're in a better place. But I mean the, the ultimate rescue. You've never found yourself separated from God and in need of the touch of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God. Well, today we're going to read of the Lord's endearing love for you. There is this mythical notion, and it is absolutely a myth, that God is so angry at me because of my failures, and they are many. But God is so angry at me that he has turned away from me. Or that God is so angry at me that I'm in the shape I'm in. The difficulties of my life are because of God, because of God's judgment or because of God's anger, because of God's disdain for me. That I'm in this shape because of me. Well, certainly I contribute, right? If I, to borrow a metaphor, if I go do something reckless, go play in the freeway, so to speak, and there's a terrible accident where I star in the main role, well, clearly, I'm a contributor to that circumstance. But there are many circumstances. I was reading this week of 
test a commentary on the book of Job. If there's a guy who's not guilty when all of these calamities come into his life, it is Job. The scripture declares him as a righteous man, a man who walks after God, a man who keeps, as it were, a short account of God, recognizes his need for God, walks in the mercy of God, seeks the forgiveness of God, is reconciled to God when he sins, and so forth. Not a perfect man, but a reconciled man, a man who walks in the company of God and with the people of God. And yet in the midst of all of that, experiences a greater sadness than any of us have ever experienced. And in the midst of that, as any one of us would experience, Job said some things. In the middle of the book of Job, Job said some things that are not true of God. He spoke in error of God, and God rebukes him for that in chapter 40. And, and Job repents of that, chapter 41, chapter 42. He does so because he is guilty. But these calamities don't come upon Job because of his sin. They don't, they don't come upon Job because of his failures. These calamities come upon Job because of some wisdom that's greater than mine, greater than yours, and greater than all the other so-called pundits around us these days. There's no end to people who think they know what God is doing about everything. And they don't mind telling you because they want to dazzle you with how smart they are. There's an old adage that always comes to mind. Better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and leave no doubt. Be very careful speaking for God. If the Bible doesn't say it, maybe you ought not to say it. So, in the midst of God's people in exile, some would say, well, you know, they're there because they deserved it. Well, that's true. In this case, it's true. It's not Job. This is, the circumstances of Isaiah are not the circumstances of Job. The reason they're in exile is because they deserve it. But how long do they deserve it? How long do you deserve it? How long does anyone deserve it? The reality is we all deserve it forever. But none of us are counting on that. All of us are counting on better news. And if there's not better news, then I ask you, why are you here? What's the purpose of church? If the purpose of church is just to announce that the bad news lasts forever, I got better things to do. If all I've got is this life and then the judgment where the bad news perpetuates forever, then I got to get busy having a good time because eventually the good times are going to run out. And all I got is misery from now on for eternity. That's not true. That's not the purpose of church. That's not why we're here today. We're here to celebrate that the good times haven't even gotten here yet. And that God is going to rescue us from the sadness and sorrow and misery that we have, for the most part, earned and deserve. And yet, he's going to be kind and merciful. And he is. And he is already. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us celebrate that God does not give us what we deserve. 
And he says that as beautifully as anywhere in the Bible. In the chapters we read a week ago and in the chapters we read today. Isaiah 55 is full of good news. If you're here today and you just need some good news for your soul, good news for your joy, good news for your heart, good news for your sin, you've come to the right place. Let's read Isaiah 55. You'll note that the verb come occurs four times in the first verse. If you think God is stiff-arming you, you're wrong. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy milk and wine without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for all the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. There is that term again, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah uses that term more than any other biblical author. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I want to suggest to you that in this passage there are at least three invitations, three, if you will, invitations to hear from God, to see from the, from the hand of God, the work of God, and to come to Him. I want to show you these very briefly, and then I hope make the significant application. Notice in verse 1, there's an invitation to trust God to satisfy. Before I read it again, I want to remind you of what is essentially the heart 
of sin. Why do people sin? I'll tell you why they sin. Because they believe that unbelief is more profitable than belief. Unbelief is more profitable than belief. Let me say it another way. They believe that disobedience is better than obedience. That's why they sin. Or let me say it another way. There is more satisfaction when I do the wrong thing than when I do the right thing. In other words, you sin because you like it. You believe in it. You think it's the best thing to do, the best thing to say, the best thing to think. You think that God is wrong. When God says you shouldn't and you say you should, you put yourself in the seat of God. In other words, the human heart is looking for satisfaction, to borrow a phrase. He uses that term here, verse 1. Rather, verse 2. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't need any satisfaction. Well, the Rolling Stones say you do. <laughs> we all know what good theologians they are. And I will tell you that the Bible says you do. You do need satisfaction. And you need it so bad, you will have it. The problem is you'll look for satisfaction in all the wrong things. Have you ever had a rebellious child? You know what's best. They rebel. And the reason they rebel seems odd to, to you. Why would they do that? Can't they see? Can't they see? You look at people about anything that you hold to passionately. I, I see this. I see that. I'm a fan of this. I'm a believer in this. I, I, these are my values. Why would my child go against me, my values? The same reason you go against God and his values. Because you want to. Because you think God is wrong. Because your child thinks his parents are wrong. His child, your child thinks that they know better than you. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for something that satisfies their mind, their affections, their flesh. They have lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They contend with these things, even as you. And it's not just an age-appropriate behavior. Sure, there are certain sins that may flare at certain periods, and the older you get, maybe those flares are a little less powerful, but they're there. They're there. The notion that somehow we age out of lust or age out of the pride of life or age out of sin in this life is bogus. You don't age out. There's not a person in this room who's not contending with the flesh, who's not contending with the sorrows of the flesh, the disappointments of the flesh, or if you will, the prison of the flesh. There's not a one of us 
So what are we to do in regards to that? We're to find our satisfaction in God. That's the answer. The, the promises of God, the, 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 that God becomes our pleasure. God uses the analogy again and again of adultery, that when you choose another God or an idol or choose another ideology, you're, you're adulteresses. You're, you're, you're following after another suitor. You've pledged yourself to God, but you play the field. Why do you do that? Because you find these other idols to be tempting. Why? Because they promise satisfaction. Read the book of Proverbs. Read Proverbs 5 specifically. The, the, the winsome woman there is, is, is alluring. Come, come, come to my bed. Come to my soft pillows and my soft sheets and so forth. There's an allure to these things. And so you consider that. You size it up. You make a determination. You calculate it. And you say, yes, sir, I'm going there. Why do we do such things? Because that's what we do with sin. We evaluate sin and determine that sin is more valuable than obedience. We are adulteresses. We pledged our lives to one. And we turn away. But the end is, it makes us, it leaves us empty. In, in the end, it, it doesn't satisfy. We think if we say these words, or we do these deeds, or if we keep this attitude, if, we, if we're hard or unforgiving or bitter or unkind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're just going to hurt them, hurt them, hurt them, hurt them, hurt them, hurt them, and that it never hurts us. Of course, that's a complete myth, isn't it? It's a myth. It's the myth that somehow you can sin against someone and not hurt yourself. Because ultimately what you've done is you turn your, your tender heart into a hard heart and you make yourself distant from God. And you find yourself longing for joy. You're longing for peace. And why, why is this turmoil always following me? <laughs> because that's what sin does provokes turmoil in our lives there's no peace there's no rest the bible talks about rest why don't we have it because we refuse to turn away from our sin and turn to god but the servant is coming the servant in our case is coming again he's coming again and he's looking for people who are looking for him looking for people who are longing for him, looking for people who are thirsting for him, looking for people who want to sup with him. Are you one of his? It's a fair question this morning. We are to see here in verse 1 that he offers an invitation to trust God to satisfy us. Come, notice his metaphor. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You thirsty? Come drink. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Can you imagine just going into the grocery store and having no money and just taking whatever you want, walk out? No, you can't imagine that. Don't do that. That's illegal. You will be arrested. I don't have time to bail you out this week. Don't do that. 
But that's precisely the metaphor he used. Come, buy wine and milk, not just water, but the good stuff. This is the, the life of a sumptuous eater. This is above average. This is, this is filet mignon menu right here. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why are you pursuing that which does not sustain you, which does not satisfy you, which does not bring you joy, which, which just does not make you healthy? Why do you spend your money on that which is destroying you? Why do you spend your life on things that cannot satisfy? You know, it really doesn't matter how you got into shape you're in or when you got into shape you're in or how many times you've thought about getting out returning to god it doesn't really matter what happened yesterday or how many yesterdays there are in your life the question today is are you ready to come are you tired you're tired of it you see, the whole point of this opening paragraph is, if you will, culminated in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Seek the Lord because the Lord is seeking you. Because the Lord extends grace. You can have it without money. There's no cost. This is the good, that's why the gospel is good news. That's why Jesus Christ dying for us is in fact good news. He's the only one who can satisfy us, and he comes to us at no cost to us, except that we come. Come, come, hear this loudly. Come and drink of the waters that the Lord has promised us. The Bible uses this very analogy in the Gospel of John, I'll just read a couple of passages here that will, I hope, be of service to you. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, cried out. This is a feast of tabernacles. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, with whom those he who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified he's saying what, what I want you to give you living water but that living water is not going to be physical water it's going to be the spirit so that you will be truly satisfied all of us ate yesterday I assume you ate because you're not dead and here you are you ate you might not have eaten sumptuously but you ate and you ate the day before, and you ate the day before. You drank the day before, and the day before, and the day before. Looks like all of you have been eating and drinking. And it sure looks like I have. But I promise you, if I decide today to go to 1 o'clock, and I interfere with somebody's lunch, which I'm not going to do, but if I decide to, even though they ate yesterday, they're going to be some mad people today. And you know why they're mad? The same reason you're mad. Somebody get that.
They're mad for the same reason we're mad. Because we eat and we eat and we eat and we eat and we drink and we drink and we drink and we drink. And it doesn't matter how much we eat or drink in a little while. We want to do it all over again. It turns out even the best stuff doesn't last. It turns out the best the world can give you doesn't last. So the Bible uses this metaphor that we can all understand. You know how you get hungry and then you get hungry and then you get hungry and then you get hungry. You know why you keep getting hungry? Because within you, there's a desire to be satisfied. And it turns out, not even food, not even drink, and not even fill in the blank with whatever else is going on in your life can finally and fully satisfy you. Because after a moment, or several moments, or many moments, you just want it again. Because the world is not set up to put an end to your satisfaction. It turns out that God has created a world where you're only going to be satisfied with something that's not of this world. But you keep banging your head on the wall. And believing that if you just had more money, if you just had more experiences, if you just got better vacations or drove a better car, lived in a better house, if you just had more, more, more of what the world offers you, better wife, better husband, better friends, better church, better preacher, if you just had more, if we just had a bigger choir, if we just had a bigger baptistry, that's silly. I mean, it's things ginormous. But if we just had more of what the world can offer us, we'd be okay. You know, that's where we're going to find happiness and satisfaction. But that's not what the Bible says. It turns out that's not what God says. And it turns out that what God says is actually true and what you say is not. And the sooner you get with the program, the more you're going to find satisfaction. So here's an invitation to trust God to be your satisfaction. Come, come. Jesus meets a woman at the well in John chapter 4. You know this story. I won't belabor it except to read a portion of it. Verse 7, John chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, thinking about the well, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, who are you, punk? You're not Jacob. 
He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Yeah, that's the way it is in the world. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You want to live forever? You want to find satisfaction? You want to be at peace? You want to find rest? Are you tired of fighting? Are you tired of misery? Are you tired of captivity? Are you tired of exile? Well, friend, hear this. Come home. Are you tired of taking your daddy's money? your daddy's grace, your daddy's mercy, and squandering it with pigs, come home. There's a second thing we see in Isaiah 55. In verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me. There's an invitation to trust the mercy of God. Notice in verse 7, he says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now this flies in the face of contemporary wisdom about God. Contemporary wisdom about God says that if you come to God, he'll spank you. If you get too close to God, he'll stiff arm you. If you get too close to God, he'll drive you away. If you get close to God, he'll find out what you're doing, and he will be angry. And he will punish you. <laughs> That's contemporary wisdom. That's not biblical wisdom. Contemporary wisdom says that God doesn't know what you're doing. And because God doesn't know what you're doing, he's not mad. Well, that's crazy. God does know everything you're doing. In fact, he numbers the hair on your head. Think about that for a moment. I raised a wife and three children. Okay, I raised three children. I don't have long hair, but every morning in my sink, there are long hairs. Every morning of my life, I've lost count. I don't want to count. I don't intend to count. And I think you're weird if you are counting, but God's counting. We've gone through a lot of hair. And God knows every one of them. You think for a minute, God doesn't know what you're doing, who you're doing it with, how long you've been doing it. You think for a minute that God doesn't know your misery. He doesn't know your exile. He doesn't know where you are. Do you think for a minute that God has lost sight of you? Has lost count of you, has lost regard for you, has forgotten you. You think for a minute that you could lose sight of one of your children? I don't think so. I think if your children were in rebellion, they'd be on your heart every day and virtually every moment of every day. And God promises that we are on his heart. Verse 7, let the wicked 
forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may find what? Judgment? No. Compassion. Mercy. This is the word for mercy. Let him find mercy. What is God going to do? Think of the prodigal father in Luke 15. Not the boy in all of his riotous living. Think of the father. Who is the, the, the star of that parable is not the boy. The point is not the boy. The point is the father. What's the, what's the attitude of the father? He sees his son coming home and he runs to meet him. He doesn't sit there with his arms folded and patting his foot with a lecture. He runs to meet him and he falls on his neck and he kisses him and he says, throw the party. The son that was lost is now home. Praise God. You feel that? Do you understand that's who we're talking about here? The Lord has his people in exile. They're there because of their sin. They're there because of their riotous living. They're there because they have forgotten God, and God put them there. But now God is going to bring them home, and he's going to send his only son to demonstrate the limits to which God is willing to go to prove to you that he loves you, that he cares for you, and that he intends to be merciful to you. What is your response? Let the wicked forsake his way. Come home. He uses this word in verse 7. He will abundantly pardon. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a law and order guy. I, I kind of think that, you know, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. I'm kind of that way. And I want to suggest that's not a bad strategy on earth. We can debate that out off, uh, off the grid, if you will, if you want to. But I'm going to tell you something, friend. God is ready to abundantly pardon you and all your friends and all your family. And all those other people too. All those other people are doing terrible things. They're blind, looking for satisfaction in worldly things. They think because of anger, they're justified. They think because of lust, they're justified. Because injustice has happened to them, they've been hurt, they can hurt other people. They, they got all kinds of reasons to justify why they do what they do. All, all those people. They can be pardoned too. You say, well, I don't think they ought to be pardoned. Well, you don't get a vote, praise God. Jesus told a parable about a man who hired laborers. And he hired some first in the morning and offered them a wage. He hired some a little late in the day and offered them a wage. Then he hired some an hour before the day was over, and he offered them the exact same wage. He went to settle up at the end of the day, and the folks who got the same wage that started early in the morning complained because the folks that got in on the pardon, if you will, on the money, they got the same money as the guy who worked all day. You'll remember Jesus' response was, did you sign up to work for the money that I promised? Did I give you the money that I promised? Yes. So how is that an injustice to you? You say, well, I, I haven't sinned very much. 
And therefore, I don't need quite as much of a pardon. So I, I'm better than him. To which Jesus again tells a parable and says, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. It turns out that your self-righteousness and your high and mighty attitude is in fact ugly to God. We ought to be singing the praises of God again and again. He has abundantly pardoned me and he'll abundantly pardon anybody else. Anybody. Spell it. A-N-Y-B-O-D-Y. Anybody. This is an invitation to trust the mercy of God. God is full of mercy. He is kind to sinners. He's, he's kind to every last one of them. And this ought to be our message again and again and again. We ought to be compelling them to come, that God would forgive them, that God will forgive them, that God will forgive them. There's a third thing. That's an invitation here to trust the wisdom and power of God. Talk about this for so long. Notice in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You ever consider what that means, the heavens are higher than the earth? I'm not an astronomer, but I respect astronomy I respect the enormity of astronomy do you know we have telescopes that can see farther than you can even imagine I love a good planetarium go to a planetarium and my favorite part of the planetarium is when they show the respective sizes of the planets then they put you on a if you will a, a virtual rocket and you're going out to the, the planets in our solar system and you just go and go and go and go and you sit there and you're tapping your foot and you're waiting, you're waiting and all of a sudden, bang, Jupiter shows up. Bang, Saturn shows up. Bang, Neptune shows up. And then you realize you're, you're not even at the end of our galaxy. And listen to me, there are hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And the scripture says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, God doesn't think like you. He doesn't act like you. He doesn't respond like you. Think of that for a moment. God is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely strong. He gives an illustration in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. It comes out of my mouth. God has promised an abundant pardon. God has promised mercy and compassion. He says, just as, as the rain has its purpose, my word has its purpose. My word has spoken. My servant is coming. 
And you shall, verse 12, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. And there shall be no more of this other stuff. No more briars and brambles, but there's going to be joy and peace. We're going to find in Christ all that we're longing for, all that we're looking for. I think of these words in conclusion in Revelation 21. Verse 5, Jesus said, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, these words reflect the wisdom and the power of God. His ways are not your ways. His his thoughts are not your thoughts. But these words are his thoughts. This is what God thinks about you and me. This is what God thinks about the end of time. This is what God thinks about the end of this life. This is what God thinks about the end of the earth, the destruction of the earth and the rebuilding of the earth. This is what God thinks. This is, write it down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God and he'll be my son. But as for those who refuse to come, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This word is trustworthy, and it's true. God is not like me. If you come, I'll give to you from the spring water of life without payment. You can come to Jesus won't cost you a thing. I hope today you'll give thought to what it means to be a father of Christ. It is one who satisfied the kindness of God. I want to invite you to stand with me right now. Will you do that? I've asked Terry to come and we're going to sing. We're going to conclude the service today with a song. You'll recognize the song. Sing it with us. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power.
I hope you believe that today. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, remind us that you've been at work in all our days. There hasn't been a moment of time in all our lives that you haven't been at work. Your ways are mysterious. Your ways are perplexing to us, but nonetheless, they are true. And we know that you have been calling us, calling us, calling us, come, 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 come. And some have come. But as the hymn writer says, Lord, we're prone to wander. Yes, Lord. We're prone to wander. But many have never come. They've played games. They've talked about it. They've acted like it. They've put on a show. They've walked down an aisle. They've said words. But they've never truly come. Come to living water. Come to the food that satisfies. They've never truly come. So today, Father, May the beauty of your tender arms, your tender tears for us finally wake us up and draw us home. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, Come to Jesus. Help us, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, before you.